0: Coffee Calm and Connection is about being human. It's about you choosing to prioritize your well-being, putting the time in to strengthen your resilience to adversity and being part of a community that holds you accountable and offers support when the going gets tough. Our podcasts bring expert insight and real-life experiences together for you to enjoy and learn what it is that makes us human and how to work with it. Good morning, Martin. Thank you so much for joining me this morning on Coffee, Calm and Connection, notwithstanding the fact that it is actually afternoon. Thank you for coming.
1: It's great to be here, Sarah.
0: <laughs> so um, I'm really grateful to have you here. And in our previous conversation, I really, um, really enjoyed what you had to say. And I think it's going to be quite an interesting topic. And the topic broadly is dealing with uncertainty, which I suppose has been quite prevalent in the last 20 months. So I don't know if you wanna give a bit of background about who you are and, and why you're qualified to have this conversation with me about uncertainty. That would be wonderful.
1: Yes, of course, Sarah. So. so I, um, for the last 12 years, I've had my own business working in, um, with business leaders and within elite sport, with athletes, with coaches, helping them to really perform at their best, understanding the psychology of what drives high performance. So obviously this has a, a, you know, there's a massive correlation there with dealing with uncertainty, whether it's business, it's sport, or it's life. As the last 18 months has taught us, there's a lot of uncertainty in the world, but uncertainty's always been present. my background in terms of what led me into what I did was I I did a sports science degree. I was always fascinated with psychology and what was it that drove high performance in sport? Why do some people fulfill their talent and others squander it? And that sort of led me down that path of discovery in my degree. And then upon leaving that, I wanted to just get a bit more of worldly experience. So I wanted to travel and, and just, you know, Go into work and and see what it was like in the business world and that led me into sales and sales training and i noticed a lot of parallels there in sales training and people understanding people and very much around the soft skills and psychology and what it is that drives human behavior and that again led me to sort of further education just investing in my own skills and development until eventually I set up my own business. I thought, you know, I can, I can go and do this myself. And also it can lead me back into hopefully back into sport where I've got a passion and I have fused the two ever since. So, um, yeah, I hope that that's a bit of a whistle stop tour of bringing me today.
0: A couple of things you've said have really resonated. So, um, in. My other life, so a different business that I, 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 I run, um, I've recently been doing um, some leadership coaching for a, a medium-sized uh, corporate business, um, and in, in conjunction with one of my uh, partners. And <clears throat> this parallel between business and sport coaching is really prevalent, and it is absolutely all-around mindset, and I, too, find it completely fascinating. Um, I was very lucky to be uh, finalisted uh, in the Women in Insurance Awards recently. Um, and mm-hmm. uh, I went to the event and Sally Gunnell was speaking and she was talking. I don't know if you've ever heard her speak. She's phenomenal. But that's all around motivation and mindset in the run-up to the 1992 Olympics where she obviously took gold. And, and she's 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 phenomenal when she speaks on, on this concept. I think it's yeah. brilliant.
1: Yeah, so while you I mean, you know, that is, um, yeah, well, I guess we're going to have lots to discuss then today, but that's fascinating. Just that idea there of Sally talking about the run-up to competition. Well, that's something that I come across with the athletes I work with. And, and one of the things which business can learn from sport is that within sport, you've, you've often got very clear goals and deadlines. So I've got a client, for example, that I started working with back in 2013 Um, I'll share a story, if if I may.
0: Yeah, please do. Um,
1: uh, A lot of people can go back to 2012. In the UK, Olympics comes along. The summer of 2012, people were inspired. The, You know, two weeks after that, the Paralympics came along and people were even more inspired by the incredible feats there. And I noticed in that summer there was... You know, there was a real pick-me-up in, in the morale. When I was going into different clients' businesses, I felt that, you know, the buzz around the place, people always talking about the Olympics. Even the BBC breakfast became the Olympic breakfast. So people were starting the day, you know, not talking about all of the things that are going wrong in the world, but they were talking about how many medals Britain had won and, you know, and sports that we'd never heard of, or well, a lot of people hadn't, anyway, like dressage. And, and this kind of swept the nation. Anyway, this... This girl at the time called Carly Tate, was who worked for a marketing company in Stockport, she was watching this and she had no interest in sports whatsoever. And she was just intrigued as why everybody, and a bit confused why everyone was so gripped by the Olympics and the Paralympics. But when people got even more gripped and engaged with the Paralympics, she you know, started to take attention because Carly has a condition called cerebral palsy, which a lot of people know of now and... When Carly was born in the 80s they really didn't know much about her condition. Anyway, you know to cut that long story short, she decided I need to buy a ticket um, to the Paralympics and go and see what all the fuss is about. The only tickets available were to the closing ceremony. So she went along, 500 pounds a ticket each, convinced her best friend to part with the money, and she was so inspired, but the the thing that struck her the most was, you know, she'd spent a whole life believing that She could never be successful at any sports because of her experience in school. She was the only disabled child in her class. She was always left out in sports PE. All her beliefs were she wasn't capable. Then she went to the Paralympics and in one of the first races she witnessed, the 100 metre wheelchair race, she found out half the competitors also had cerebral palsy. And this completely transitioned her beliefs in that moment. She left the stadium, and we all may f- make flippant comments to our friends at times, but she turned to her best friend and she said, you know, you may laugh, but um, in four years' time, I'm going to be lining up in the final of the 2016 Paralympics. And of course, you know, a friend laughed it off. And, but Carly came home, and she looked up the wheelchair racing coaches in the country. There were only five, and one, fortuitously, was down the road in Stockport from where she worked, She went along on a Tuesday night. The first night she got there, she couldn't even fit in the race wheelchair because they're like serious bits of kit. And, you know, you've got to have some flexibility and be quite slim. She couldn't fit in one. So the coach said, well, look, you're not a normal wheelchair user. So why don't you just try going around the track in a normal wheelchair just to get used to it? It took her 10 minutes where everybody else was doing it in a minute. So she was way, way off. And then uh, a few months later, we met and we started working together because she'd gone to her first race and basically crumbled under the pressure and the stress she felt. And we worked on her mindset over that period. at times kept coming down and down and down. And in the year of 2016, there was a couple of people injured. So she got a place to go to the European Championships where she went and won two silver medals and then got one of the final places on the plane to Rio and made the final of the 2016 Paralympic Games. You know, what an incredible story, but the reason what's triggered me to share it is, you mentioned about Sally Gunnell, she had a goal that was fixed in time and the thing with Carly and Carly Tate's story is, from that moment of having no beliefs, no interest in sport to being inspired, there was a fixed moment in time where it was 2016 and it was very easy to visualize that event. And you see, having that very clear, compelling goal is what can give people a feeling of certainty. Because look around us, the world is uncertain. There's so much uncertainty all of the time. You know, just daily tasks that we do driving down the road how uncertain is just driving down the road on the opposite side with a white line separating you going at 70 miles an hour but we don't think about that because what we think about is where we're going you know so we're not thinking of all of the things that could go wrong on the way hopefully not anyway otherwise it's going to be a bit of a nervy drive but that's the you know it's and it's the same in business as it is in life is when we have that clarity that can give us the feeling of certainty, which helps us to move forward and helps generate emotions like confidence and a feeling of control and motivation and all of those things. But without that clarity, we can get lost in the challenges or the uncertainties or the things that go wrong, especially when events happen, global events like the pandemic over the last 18 months. You know, and those things we can't account for, we can't predict. They can come out of nowhere. But the people I've worked with during that period, the ones that have coped the best with it, have within the confinements of what's in their control during that time, they have created clear goals and a clear pathway for what they're going to do. And the people that struggle are the ones which don't have that clarity or, you know, um, cannot create it in their environment.
0: There's a, a, a very significant, um, I was going to say parallel, but it's actually a similarity. In fact, it's absolutely what Sally was talking about. Um, mindset and focus being two very critical elements. And she was saying she had to do a lot of visualisation work of actually winning because she noticed that she didn't believe she could win and therefore she could be winning and she'd just start sort of almost throwing the race subconsciously. Mm -hmm. And it was through doing mindset work with somebody like yourself that um, she started to actually visualize and therefore believe. My question to you comes around. So if we take this out of business and we take it out of sport and and you're in life, often um, I feel like I'm juggling and I'm juggling so many balls that I can either lose sight of where my focus is, or sometimes I can't even begin to tell you where my focus should be because there are so many ways in which I should be focusing. So personally, um, I, I run two businesses and I've got very clear goals sometimes, sometimes they waffle a bit, where I want to be with both. I have a clear goal about where I want to be with my health and my fitness. Uh, I have a clear goal where the type of mum I want to be and where I want my children to go. And a prime example is I decided, uh, I think in June, that I was going to run an ultra marathon. Now, I am not an ultra marathon runner. Uh, I am not, I, I've run three marathons before badly. Like, I've ended up really quite ill for a number of months after all three. So, my theory was if I was to run three marathons in one, uh, it would be fine. Um, And I decided that what I would do is I would put a year-long plan in place and I would get a running coach. And it was going to be in the run-up to my 40th birthday and it will be kind of the defining act that will help me with my mental and physical health. One goal at which to point everything. And I started and by end of um, August I was on a good trajectory and I absolutely fell through the floor in September, in every way, mental, physical, I wasn't very well, fell through the floor. And now I don't know if that was a good goal. Now I'm starting to run again and I'm, I mean, I only ran two miles this morning and my back's gone because I fell off a horse and my ankle's gone and blah, blah, blah. Is that the wrong goal? Am I focusing everything at the wrong place? Yes, potentially. Am I compensating for something by aiming for that goal? What is it? That... So what I suppose I'm, I'm asking you is, how would you, if you were me, identify the true goal and then put sens- you know, a sensible, true, achievable goal from okay. which to focus?
1: So there's an, there's an awful lot you've just shared there with that. So we could go at that for a long time, but I'll, I'll, I'll try and take it you know, top line. Um, I think, firstly, everyone's, our body gives us signs. You know, I, I believe my coaching philosophy is very much people have all the answers that they need within themselves. And people's potential is about tapping into that, understanding ourselves more, learning to listen to our intuition. And coaching is very much around that. You know, it's not about giving people the answers. It's about helping them to find their own. So if we were working together, which I know this isn't about on that, I'd be asking questions around that, around your motivation for the goal. What you know was the initial trigger? Um, what was the things that you wanted to get out of it? What did you think you would have at the end? And, and there'd be a lot, of, a lot of analysis there to try and understand. Because before we set a goal, the one thing to make sure it's the right goal for us is to make sure it's aligned with what our values are. So it's it's aligned with what matters to us, what's important. But then the second thing is it's also then about timing because you mentioned at the start of that, you know, just juggling things and and keeping focused. One of the things I work with with clients a lot is around the idea that less is more. The idea that, you know, we live in a world now where we are not distraction. It comes in the biggest form of distraction now is actually opportunity because we're so connected. There are so many opportunities to grab our time and our attention now in the digital hyper-connected world we live in. We're not short of options. There's so many things we can do with our time, and that becomes a big distraction. So focus and concentration is about less. You know, when I do the work I do with elite sports people, and whenever I ask them, tell me, you know, I was with a Premier League footballer last week, and I was like, we were doing a bit of a review of the season so far. And tell me about this game, and, or tell me about that game. Um, when you're at your best, what's going through your mind? And the answer is almost always nothing at all. It's just pure concentration, just in the moment, present. But when we start juggling too many things, you know, we our um, attention starts to flip, and so actually. The first part is, have you know, how many things have we actually are we trying to direct direct our attention in? Our minds only have so much battery power. So I like to think of the analogy. Think about your phone battery. Every single day, our brain works the same way. If we get good sleep and we rest and recover overnight, we wake up and we've got a full battery. But depending on what we do that day and how many things we're balancing and juggling, that battery, ultimately what what drains the battery is decisions. So there's a lot of research around this, around the number of decisions we make. And there's examples of great leaders. I remember reading about Obama when he was in office, that he he started to notice he was wasting decision making power, energy in the mornings, on trivial things that he felt were trivial, like what he was going to wear that day, depending on the environment he was in, who he was meeting, etc. Until he just simplified his approach in the morning to be able to focus on more important things and just lined his wardrobe with gray and blue suits. So, so he just woke up and alternated them every day, stripping that, giving him more energy to focus on what matters. But we have a tendency to take on more and more. And I think that's partly the, the environment that we're operating in, this taking on more and more, but the key to it. And what I often do with clients, on a fairly regular basis, monthly, bi-monthly, is we'll sit down and review and have a, a, a chance to sort of step back and look at that period of time and analyze what's going well, what's not, what's important, what do you need to let go of, and having that constant review because life changes so quickly. You know, you can start with a set of goals in one business and two weeks later... Things can change and it can look entirely different. You've suddenly added a health goal over here. And so just having regular opportunity to step back and also to realize, do you know what? And and this is something I know I've struggled with in the past and a lot of people do, is it's okay to let go of things. It's okay to set a goal, go down the path and then realize, actually, this was not great timing. And just readjust and reassess and make a new decision. Whereas sometimes we feel I've made the decision, I've committed to it, I've got to follow through. And we can do things like burn ourselves out or we can reach the goal. I've come across so many people who have done this. Reach the goal and absolutely no satisfaction. Just glad it was over. Relief. Right, I need three months off now. You know, I was reading a story the other day about a guy that had sold his business and at the end, he had made all these plans, but the process was so taxing for him. For six months after he sold his business, he literally just sat on the sofa, stayed in the house all day just watching TV. And he believes he had burnout, mm-hmm. You know, but he had all of these plans for that time.
0: I'm interested in the analogy about the battery. So I often use the analogy of having too many tabs open on your computer. And I had I did a podcast in the early days of CCC with um, somebody called um, Aji, who's a psychologist, and he was saying one of the problems with that analogy is it aligns yourself to a computer, and we're not. And therefore, if you're looking purely logically, you're going to miss a whole wealth of stuff that actually makes us human. And I hadn't thought about it that, that way before. And one of the things that I do quite... Um, Uh, persistently is I over-logicalise everything everything's a process, everything's a plan it's logical and I tend to downplay the emotional drainage if I can put it that way and as a mum of three children and um, dare I say it I I think women as a general rule overthink more than men, the amount of times I've had a conversation with my husband where I've said, oh, but this meant this, 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 this. And he's gone, oh no, didn't, didn't go anywhere near that depth. What are you doing? Um, so that type of, and I think that's very draining. Um, and I notice for me and have done probably, um, probably for as long as I can remember in my adult life, um, I get to about four o'clock in the afternoon and I'm brain dead, there's mm. nothing. There's absolutely nothing left. And often, I feel quite fluey. I feel quite ill, yeah. you know, several times a week. And I, and I go to bed between eight and nine o'clock every night, often before my 12-year-old, um, because I've just got nothing. I've got no ability to sit in an evening and watch TV. I don't watch TV, because I go to bed. I put the kids to bed, I go to bed. I wake up at six the next morning, and I am um, one million miles an hour until four o'clock comes everything dies and I'm useful for nothing uh, um, and I I'm interested in this battery analogy, I'm interested in the idea that perhaps if I was to I've, I've sort of gone that way because I tend to do stuff that needs thinking space in a morning at work because I've got no thinking space in an afternoon but I wonder if that's kind of exacerbated the problem because then I've somehow instilled a belief that afternoons are a write off which I've now significantly reduced the amount of Effective working day just through a belief, you know. So, I, I, I think I'm so interested in psychology, and I, I think about this type of thing all the time. So I'm really interested in this, um, this decision making winding your battery down idea.
1: Yeah, and and just on that, there, the, you know, you've mentioned some key points there. The first thing is there is research around us having more creative space, more battery power to make more important decisions, have that clarity in the mornings. But there's all, there's also research around body clocks and people work, some people work better earlier in the day and some people work better later in the evening. So there is like sin- significant research around both of those things. The point around you make it, you know, having a belief we, you know, we're habitual creatures. And we can our thoughts and beliefs affect our behaviors and habits. So, yes, that can easily happen too. You know, when it comes to productivity, my own experience and working with my clients, I find that people are a lot more effective when they just slow down. You know, that's slowing down, things slowing down. But I guess the environment we live in, the world and the messages that are being reinforced are, you know, go faster, go hard. And so with that around us, it can be very easy to be caught up in that trap. But I have found that it's counterintuitive. You know, the opposite is actually more productive, more effective when we just slow down, we give ourselves more chance to make those decisions, but then focus on less. And that's one of the lessons in sport that I guess there is less options because what they you know their goals are very specific and often in especially sports we've mentioned like carly and for sally gunnell it's one event it's a major event a world championships or an every four years you know typically they've got one main event they're aiming for annually and then all the other meets line up to that so it's a very focused goal um without many distractions outside of it but all of the sports people I work with the thing that mainly interferes with their performance on the field or the pitch is what's going on in their lives around that Mm. because, because again, if their energy is being taken up by lots of other things, they haven't got the battery power required to perform at that elite level. Not that
0: I'd ever put myself in, anywhere near the word elite, but um, I, ran the, um, I ran the Edinburgh Marathon in 2010, and I was really ill afterwards, for months afterwards. Um, but I'd had my first child eight months before by cesarean section, so what the hell I was doing running? marathon i had no idea so obviously there was a massive knock-on effect there but i wasn't happy with the results so i went and did uh, the paris marathon that didn't go too well because i had knee injuries but the thing that you've really struck a chord with me is i ran the london marathon in 2014 and i spent two and a half hours in the st john's ambulance afterwards because i collapsed now i was at the fittest then that 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 was my that was my four-hour marathon it was gonna be amazing uh, I had really worked hard but in the four weeks running up to that my one kid had chickenpox, the other had a throat infection and my husband had full-blown flu and was out for two weeks so I was round-the-clock nurse and I wasn't you know I must have been carrying some viral stuff myself so the time the race day came there was so much that had affected that and I spent a very long time not accepting that it was external factors, but only actually, I'm a bad runner. I'm not built to run. Do you, I'm quite interested in that. That
1: that bit's very interesting. Like I say, you know, I think it's interesting for you, um, and we won't do it today because, you know, just time, but to just analyse the trigger for what is the purpose and the why of making the decisions in terms of the goal and what it's going to give you. But around... Um, the idea of them managing the mental process. That's fascinating what you just said. That's also very much connected to the idea of us managing uncertainty. Because um, in the 80s, and now one of the most renowned psychologists in the world in this space is a guy called Martin Seligman. And he was researching how we actually explain events to ourselves and in 1988, so he'd come up with a, um, his model, which he calls the theory of the explanatory style. And that is how do we explain events to ourselves when they've either gone well or gone wrong? And he, he built his research and his theory. And then in 1988, he got to work with the U S swim team. And what he did was he got this, a questionnaire and he, the swimmers were, were not aware that he was working with the coach. He said to the coach, get all your swimmers to complete this questionnaire and we'll plot where they are on this graph from um, on a chart and they'll end up either at one end or you know, across the spectrum to the other. One end is pessimistic style to, to an optimistic style. Pessimistic style means that if an event goes wrong, what will I'll tend to do is how I'll explain that to myself in terms of my internal dialogue, the self-taught that we all have, I will blame myself, I'll take it personally, I will use permanent language and I will, you know, I'll really feel, I'll really feel that much more, I'll take, I'll blame myself and so that is much harsher language. On the opposite end of the spectrum, the optimistic style, people with that style tend to separate the event from everything else. So they isolate the event, make it very specific. If I failed in a specific task, I make it specific. I don't blame myself personally and, and blame lots of thing, other things around me. Um, and I look for reasons why it went wrong logically. So hence analyzing other factors in my life, which helps me then process that decision and be okay with it, and be able to then re- react and a lot faster, respond and move on, you know? so. And this is a connection to resilience, which is very important in managing uncertainty. So all the swimmers come back, he gets all the results. Then he says to the coach, right, what I want you to do is I want you to get all the the two months away from the 88 Olympics at this point. I want you to get all your swimmers and get them to do a timed lap for what's coming up in the Olympics. When they do, I want you to then give them their time, but not their real time. I want you to give them a fake time, one that is slow enough that they'll still believe you because remember the finely tuned athletes but not um but slow enough as well that they'll be disappointed in that time and then we're gonna see the reaction so what happened can you imagine if you were on the very pessimistic end of the scale and you got that poor time you're two months away for the Olympics what are you going home at night thinking about Absolutely. can you imagine what's going through your brain now you're thinking I've blown it I, I'm not ready I, I can't believe I've I, you know I've done all this for two months away and Right, so I'm going home, and my language for this is I'm being very critical. My inner critic is absolutely off the scale now, right? Um, if we flip over to the optimistic side, I my term for this, because I like to simplify it, is this is the coach. This is your inner coach. Now, a coach is not going to, a good coach would not pump you up with superlatives, tell you you're brilliant and everything's fine, you'll be great. A good coach will tell you the truth but they'll do it in a very encouraging way. And what a lot of people aren't great at is this inner coach bit of getting themselves onto this optimistic side. Anyway, what, what he found, when the following day they came back in to practice, they did it again. And then they, they looked at the, the differences in results compared with where they scored on this graph. And that's when Seligman knew he was onto something because he found a direct correlation with... People's performance and where they scored on this graph, and what he found is that people with the pessimistic um, style, the following day they performed worse. People in the middle performed about the same, and the higher they went up towards the optimistic end, they improved. Because what those those people of that style done is they said right, okay, that was a one-off event. I wasn't necessarily ready for it. It was training. It wasn't like the real thing, and they'd coach themselves overnight into You know, finding reasons and ways to actually resolve something that was uncertain and unsettling in their mind and the following day in training, get themselves back into a positive place. Now, the person with the highest optimistic style was a guy called Matt Biondi, and he was also the poster boy for the swim Olympics, and he was expected to go and win six gold medals. That's what the country expected, and he was the best swimmer in the world. He lost the first two races. And the first one he finished fourth. He didn't even get a medal. Um so the press, of course, vilified him. Now that would crush most competitors, most athletes in most right. But in his final four races, he won every single one and set a new world record. And it just goes to show that even even with the most posit- positive attitude, optimistic mindset, and belief, even if you're the best in the world. You can still fail you can still have a bad performance but it doesn't define you what defines you more is how you respond and for him the defining takeaway from the story is the final four races you know and what he did there even though he essentially you know failed in the first two from his expectation
0: i think that's really powerful and and uh, the the Olympics that's just gone uh, Simone Biles springs to mind yes where she kind of stepped away and I, I didn't read much about it but obviously I caught the headlines and, and she sort of said you know for her mental health this is this is what I'm going to do which takes an incredible amount of power given the vilification that came directly at her and the reason she's um, kind of stuck in my mind is because my daughter has been a gymnast since age six at elite level Right. So at six, seven, she was doing 12 to 16 hours a week and she crumbled when she was eight. Uh, um, she's quite an anxious individual, but she started having uh, panic attacks about going to gym, but didn't want to give it up. So we were in this really awkward position as parents. And I even spoke to the gym and said, do, you know, do I need to get a sports psychologist in to help her through this? Because she really wants to do it. Um, and the gymnastics weren't particularly supportive. That It was very negative language that was used towards the, the gymnasts. And it was very sort of almost guinea pig-esque. Like, you will do this and you will do this now. If you've got sore elbow, then uh, just power through it type thing. Um, and I watched this very confident little girl literally crumble, right? Uh, and anyway, that long story, she ended up leaving. But her persona tends to crumble under any pressure. So she started doing uh, 11 plus, she was going to do the 11 plus and she was having, uh, um, I don't know, whatever they call it, tuition. And again, the pressure, the slight increase in pressure, you've got to do this homework and you just watch complete crumble. So we canned the 11 plus, we canned gymnastics and so we just let her be who she is. And actually what she's done is she's come full circle. And it's really lovely to watch because she started. Gym- she has to get to start gymnastics at a different uh, club that's a lot um, sort of, uh, it's not lower, it's just a much smaller, you know, the facilities aren't quite as big and all that kind of stuff. But it's kind, overwhelmingly kind. She's at a different school, which is kind, you know, so that they're not heaping pressure on. And she's almost finding her own pressure. So she was given the, op- the option, do you want to compete in regionals or nationals next year? And of her own accord, she came and goes. Oh, I'm I'm competing in nationals next year because uh, just thought I would. Uh, and I, it's it's been so interesting to see the change in her. But it is something that worries me because resilience is not something I think that our younger generations have oodles of.
1: Well, wow. I mean, you know, I could go in so many directions now. So uh, <laughs> so. Um... Firstly, it's interesting around gymnastics, there's been a few documentaries, there's been an investigation into British gymnastics recently um, around the treatment of people and some of those behaviours. In lots of environments, sometimes those cultures exist, sadly. Um, When it comes to resilience, one of the interesting things about resilience, you know, it's a bit of a buzzword at the moment, is that resilience is, you know, what is linked to it is in the, the way that we think. And we all have different personality styles. So inherently, we think in different ways. When it comes to children, though, I've often been asked that, you know, oh, I've got my son is, or my daughter is six, and they've got blah, blah, blah. And see, you know, do you think it would be any use speaking to them? For me, I I don't, personally, I don't work with children. but But at the same time, I think that they don't need somebody like me. This is my personal belief, it's the parents that have got to do that coaching and that approach of allowing them to find their own way, knowing that actually the support, the love is unconditional regardless because unwittingly a lot of parents place the pressure on the children without knowing it and actually it's not, this is not from the child this is from the parent and yet yeah, that's very difficult to do, isn't it? Letting them come, you know, like you say she's come around in her own time um, that's right for her but I think a better way of helping them to deal with those challenges it is helping them helping to understand what is going through their mind what is their thought process rather than a lot of the time I think we we can fall into that relationship of parent child and just telling them all of the answers whereas actually like I said at the start of this podcast most of the answers are within even within children and it's just helping them to find those answers along the way, helping them to build the right pictures, like you said, Sally Gunnell, pictures in their mind. Often a child may be resisting something because of an experience. And when they think of doing that thing again, they've got a negative image in their mind, which makes them feel a certain way. Therefore, they want to avoid it. Helping them to create a new picture is a way of driving a new feeling around that specific activity or task and therefore moving forward with something. So, you know, children are very creative and they are very resilient as well. When it comes to resilience and the studies around resilience, I read a book recently all around uh, a lot of research into elite sport in Great Britain, elite athletes. And what they found is that the elite of the elite, so we've got elite, like national champions, but then the, the... did a, a massive piece of research around people that were, I guess, seen as super elite who had really won um, maybe global competitions, you know, international championships, and not just once, but several times. And this deep research, what they found is that within every, I think ni- about 95% of the super elite they classed them as, they at a young age had gone through some sort of adversity whether that be the loss of a parent or you know some real trauma something a real adversity in their life at a young age that had helped them to develop that resilience to therefore then put themselves train at this competitive level, deal with pressures and so you know resilience can it cannot be it can't just be built with the click of a finger or because we want to build it unfortunately life's events do shape us it's a bit I like to give the analogy often about the brain is like a muscle you know if you want to train your muscles to be stronger to be more resilient you go in the gym and what you do essentially is you break them down you know you put a huge resistance against them well it's the same with our mind without challenges we cannot build that resilience but especially for children doing that in a structured way is key doing that in an environment where you say, like, you know, it's very, there's no empathy, there's, you know, absolutely no emotion, there's no support, what that can, that might toughen somebody up in the short term, but long term, you know, they may suffer real damaging effects of that, that they take into lots of different areas of their life.
0: It's really interesting, because as a parent, um, it's really hard to find that balance, because your instinct is to protect and help, Um, and I, I have noticed and made a concerted effort to not help in certain circumstances. So, um, really silly example, but my eldest, again, is clashing with a particular teacher at school. Um, reading between the lines, uh, she, I would wholeheartedly think the teacher doesn't like her. Um, she's probably stroppy teenager back, which is unacceptable. But it's gone beyond that where she's now being vilified so she's being the the classroom is in a u shape and they've moved one desk to the middle that she has to sit in right which I, I don't agree with to be honest uh because uh she hasn't done anything particularly wrong bar argued about where she could find paper so um and and this conversation happened at parents evening so i know what's happened and i'm but she was in tears the other day. and She was saying, I don't, I don't want to do this subject anymore. Um, I hate this teacher. I'm going to be angry. I'm going to storm out the lesson. I'm going to blah, blah, blah. blah. And my, my first thing was, I'm going to phone the school and say, you cannot sit my daughter in the middle. And I, and I, I backed myself off and said, so what are your options here? Let, let's talk about your options. So storming out, that's one of them. Consequences. What do you think will happen? Well, I'll be sent to the head teacher. Whose side do you think the head teacher is going to take? Why? Okay, what's another option? I don't know, could you speak to the teacher? Could you say, I don't know how I've upset you, but actually I don't like sitting in the middle, can we start afresh? Yeah, but she won't listen to me, but it's still an option. You know, know. we went through every option and it was taking everything of me to not go, I'm going to protect my daughter because I thought there's two sides to every story. The chances are she's been a bit of a stroppy git. You know, you never know. So um, this is, and then my husband came in and was like, we've got to leave, why are you all doing this? And I said to him, I'm trying to teach resilience. Could you just back off? <laughs> it, was, it was like a real concerted effort. But sometimes you have the moment and you can see the learning and then you can think. But sometimes your own emotion clouds it and your, your instinct is to protect or help. And it I think it's an instinct that's got stronger and is more supported by society over the last kind of 50 years to the point that kids often don't have to do anything for themselves. You know, They're wrapped up in cotton wool to quite a late age. And I struggle consistently with that balance of you know, should I be, what parent should I be here? Um, so I, I think it's really, really difficult.
1: Yeah, and, and that, on that specific topic, the, just the whole idea of parenting, managing all of those, you're human, and that's normal, and everybody goes through that, I'm sure, and everybody listening to this will be resonating with that, especially those that have children. And is there a exact, specific right answer for each situation? No. But I think, Doing that, You know, it's as much about managing our own emotions in that scenario like it was for you as it is about helping our children to manage theirs. But that's the right approach because then as the children get older, if they can learn, if they've been taught as they're growing up to manage and to reflect on their own thinking, their actions, they develop emotional intelligence, which is just having that insight to be able to step back and be aware of our thoughts and our emotions and their, and our, also our behaviours and knowing that sometimes, you know, just because we feel a certain way doesn't mean that that's the best course of action. But even as adults, we get that wrong. You know, we get triggered and that's because we are emotional creatures. If we weren't, We would just be a world of robots and the world would be simple and logical. But that's another thing that's going on. You mentioned before, I try to make things very, very logically and make decisions logically and plan my time and my day logically, but I'm not accounting for the fact that, yeah, I'm a human being. I'm emotional. My emotional brain, actually, the research around this shows that our emotional brain, most of our decisions we make from an emotional level. And then our logical brain, which is less powerful, but obviously, yes, it's logical, it can see, it's, it's almost like the analogy of thinking with our head and feeling with our heart. It's very difficult to think with our head when our heart's saying something else, right? So managing those emotions is something which is hard to do. By the way, the later you get into the day, the lower your battery power. The, the more tired you are, the less food you've had, all of these things make it even harder to regulate emotions. You know, when we're tired, if you've not had great sleep, all of those things um, t- tax us. Um, so that is something, that's a battle which everybody faces. And wh- I think what's it's in quite it-
0: interesting that you say that because one of the things that I've read quite a lot around is this deciding with emotions, justifying with logic. And sometimes where there's a divide between those two things is where things like anxiety comes up, which is back to really understanding who you are and why whatever is going on in your life could be affecting it.
1: Yes, absolutely. And also knowing that you could have all of that knowledge, you know, the best psychologists, scientists in the world have all of that knowledge and they still make mistakes. So it's Again, I think the management of that comes back down to what's that inner dialogue that we have with ourselves, and when we lose control of our emotions, or we lose our temper, or we get frustrated by something, or we we take an action that you know isn't in our best interest, or we, we regret doing, or wouldn't do again, and all of these things that I'm sure everybody does every day at some point, right? How it's not. The action itself that's most important is how quickly we can recover from that. Because back to Martin Seligman's research, you know, if we're being highly critical and dwelling on that, you know, I I give this example often. If you go into a typical day and 10 things go well and one thing goes badly wrong, what will you drive home thinking about? What keeps you up at night? The 10 things that have gone well every day or the one thing that's gone wrong? Well, the way our brain brain is wired for survival, our primal instinct means that we're going to worry about the one thing that's gone wrong, because that's our, uh, you know, that's our survival system, our threat alert system, taking control, and that that unfortunately will take control unless we learn to step back and focus on all the other things that are going well. And so, just shifting our attention. Focusing on where we want to focus, knowing that what we focus on will expand. What mm-hmm. we focus on expands. And when we focus on the right things, those things expand and therefore will feel a different way. But it's very easy, isn't it, to focus on the one thing that's gone wrong versus the 10 things that have gone well.
0: And I think what I've taken away, and I think will be the, the title of this podcast, is coach or critic who's talking to you.
1: Absolutely. That's
0: That yeah. for me is really powerful because I think it gives me a tangible tool when something goes wrong just to reflect for a minute and go, who's talking here, coach or critic? Martin Seligman says that if it's my coach, I'll do better. Let's go with coach. Do you well, know
1: what I mean? It, yeah. I, I, I like yeah. tangible tools. Yes. So, and, and that, well, just a disclaimer, the tool of coach versus critic is Martin Robert Hall's. <laughs> Martin, Martin
0: Robert Halls, absolutely.
1: No, but I like to think of that as um, to simplify it because yes, from Seligman's research, what he found is that that is trainable, that not, neither of these mindsets are fixed. Our brain is malleable. We're forming new pathways, thought pathways all of the time. We can train ourselves to think optimistically. And the research shows that thinking optimistically is associated with high results in lots of different domains, even recovery from serious illnesses, even living longer, so many benefits. And I I prefer the word optimism over, say, being positive, for example, because in the UK, there's a lot of, can be a lot of cynicism around, oh, being positive and thinking that everything's great, but being optimistic is means that you are assessing all of the facts, but then you're choosing your thought process, you're choosing to think about it in a productive way to move forwards. And so coach, yes, everyone's got the inner critic. Everyone has that inner critic, but we can develop and turn the volume up on our inner coach. It takes a bit of practice, but everything does. But once we do that, we're laying the foundations then to build resilience, to be more resilient, to handle setbacks, to handle uncertainty. Whereas anxiety, you said before, if you think about when you felt anxious about something, which voice is in control in your mind? I can guarantee it's pretty much the critic and it's a lot of negative dialogue. You know, so our self-talk does drive our emotional state. It does feed.
0: This idea is quite, um, it's sort of the, one of the basic premises behind mindfulness, isn't it? Um, being present, being... Um, you find the same patterns, positive, uh, optimistic thinking, being present, uh, developing good habits. You find it in different guises. And I think what I find really difficult is how. Like you're caught in a, in a reactive cycle, how. So one of the things behind Coffee Calm Connection Is 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 me learning and I'm learning a vast amount, speaking to some wonderful people. You know, I've really enjoyed this conversation. And it's these little tools, these little nuggets that come out that for me, as I'm, you know, whatever I do later on, when the batteries weigh down and the kids have come back and they get off the bus and they're yelling at each other and I want to yell at them all and go to bed and, and I'm feeling negative and blah blah blah, that will be a moment where I might just have that split second where I'm going. Coach or critic? Which one is it here at play? So um, do you know what, Martin? I could speak to you all day about this and I really hope that you'll join me again for another podcast uh, in the near future. I have really enjoyed this.
1: Me too. I think, yeah, there's a lot I've learned about you today. So I didn't know already. So yeah, we could go on for hours, I'm sure. So absolutely, I'm up for a follow-up.
0: Amazing. I really appreciate your time, Martin. Thank you. It's an absolute pleasure. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. Your reviews, shares and followership is incredibly valuable to us. If you'd like to know more about our work through Coffee Calm and Connection and how we can support you, please email us at hello at org or follow us on social media. Thank you.